Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. Hey guys, welcome back to episode 15 of Dealmaker Diaries. So today we have a very cool guest. We have Mr. Paul Moore, Managing Director of Wellington Capital. Um, A brief history on Paul. After graduating with an engineering degree and then an MBA from Ohio State, Paul started on the management development track at Ford Motor Company in Detroit. After five years, he departed to start a staffing company with a partner. They sold it to a publicly traded firm for $2.9 million five years later. Along the way, Paul was finalist for Ernst & Young's Michigan Entrepreneur of the Year two two years straight. Paul later entered the real estate sector where he completed 85 real estate investments and exits, appeared on HDTV special, rehabbed and managed dozens of rental properties, developed a waterfront subdivision, and started two successful online real estate marketing firms. Three successful developments, including assisting with development of a Hyatt hotel and a multifamily housing project, led him into the multifamily investment arena. Paul co-hosts a wealth-building podcast called How to Lose Money and is a contributor to Fox Business and Bigger Pockets, producing live video and blog content on a weekly basis. Paul is the author of The Perfect Investment, Create Enduring Wealth from the historic shift to multifamily housing and has a forthcoming book on self-storage investing. Paul is also managing director of two commercial real estate funds at Wellings Capital. So ladies and gentlemen, let's give Paul a warm welcome. Let's go. All right, so Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks, Donald. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. How's your morning going so far? It's going fantastic. I'm just about to publish another article on Bigger Pockets, and so that's always a happy day for me because I grind through those, and uh, it's it's just I love the day I finally get to send it in. So I was about I got about five minutes left to work on that to send it in. Okay, how often are you um, publishing for um, Bigger Pockets? I'm trying to send in about three articles a month. Okay. Okay, so yeah, pretty busy. It looks like once a week. Yeah. Right, I'll, I'll, just, I'll start looking out for those. Great. All right, so Paul, why don't we jump right into it? So I know you started off at Ford Motor Company in Detroit on the um, management development track. Can you talk a bit about how that shaped you for starting your first company five years later? I love Ford Motor Company and uh, I really enjoyed my time there, never had anything against it, but I looked ahead about, you know, 10, 20, 30 years and saw the track people that I might, you know, were on that I might end up on. And they either worked a whole lot of hours or and they didn't have control over that time in their life, or they got relocated, you know, to like eight or 10 different cities in the US. And I didn't like either of those choices. And I also felt like I had an entrepreneurial fire in me. And so Donald, I, I 
thought, you know, I've, I've been, I keep looking at all these entrepreneurial opportunities. And so I am just going to pursue one. And that's what helped me launch. I found myself on evenings and weekends and even lunch hours, you know, looking at all these entrepreneurial things. So I finally launched a company after a bunch of failed attempts, uh, you know, starting something on the side. I partnered with another guy who had left Ford already, and that really got me started. And were there um, other entrepreneurs in your life or your family who encouraged you or who really, who you really wanted to model after? Not really, um, but the closest thing to that was in the middle of my MBA, the summer job I took was with an entrepreneur, a guy who had left Ohio, I mean, graduated from Ohio State years before me. And he started a company and I, I went to work for him for about three months. And uh, that's the closest thing I'd ever gotten to entrepreneurship. And I definitely wanted to pursue that. I was, I'm glad I did. Okay. And, and before we dig into um, the company you started, so I know you mentioned you had an MBA. So looking back, what, what are your thoughts on that MBA? Do you think you could have done it without that? Do you think that laid the groundwork and really helped you escalate your start into entrepreneurship? Or yeah, what, I what definitely could have done that? it without it. Um, honestly, there wasn't, there was only one class on entrepreneurship and only like three of us from our regular MBA program. It was a night class that they allowed us to opt out of a regular class and into that one. And only three people from our normal MBA class out of 120 took that class. And so that's how rare it was in those days. And that was really helpful. Overall, the MBA was of some value. I mean, I'm sure it helped me. I know it helped me get the job at Ford. Uh, the engineering degree, again, the rigors of the engineering degree were helpful, but, you know, actually the education itself was marginally helpful. I look at a lot of the most successful people out there and, you know, they didn't have college. Some of them didn't have college degrees or didn't finish a degree. And I, I think I could have done the same. I think a lot of people... I'm not really encouraging my kids to go the traditional four to six year route for uh, college. In fact, uh, all of them, the first three that have graduated from high school, uh, they have all done internships rather than the traditional college route. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just having dinner with some um, friends who are also entrepreneurs and we had that same conversation yesterday. So yeah, I think we could, we probably could do a whole series of podcasts on that, on that subject alone. Yeah, probably. <laughs> All right, so and Paul, so and then you started. So the company you started that was a staffing company, right? Yeah, we. I joined a friend to join uh, to actually start a staffing company. It was actually a PEO, a professional employee organization, and most people haven't heard of that these days. But uh, anyway, we did that for a number of years. We did some side businesses along the way that generally didn't work out, like nurse staffing and therapist staffing. Um. And I was uh, fortunate enough to be finalist for Entrepreneur of the Year in Michigan a couple times along the way, which I'm still amazed that I had that privilege. Um, and then we sold our company to a public firm after five years. Okay. And yeah, so yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty, pretty great achievement within five years. So wh what are some of the most valuable lessons from that venture that you still hold dear to this day, to that first can, exit? I can tell you a lot of the lessons I learned right after the exit that were really painful and valuable. And that's what's most fo foremost in my mind. But I'll tell you this, you know, at the time, 
you know, I used to make a joke, you know, us entrepreneurs are really fortunate. We have a lot of freedom. We're free to work any 80 hours a week we want. <laughs> and I don't think that was, I thought that was cute and everything, but I don't think that was really healthy. I think if I would have realized it, you know, I was, I mean, I was only like 29 to 34 years old during those years. So, um, I guess it was, you know, more acceptable then to be as driven as I was. But uh, I think if I would have really recognized this one fact, an entrepreneur's work is never done. And that's not mm. like a cute phrase. Think about it. There's always a long to-do list at the end of every day, whether you quit your, you know, four o'clock or eight in the evening or midnight, there's always a long list in front of you. You'll never be done. Absolutely. So I, wish I would have thought that through, you know, I had two kids, very young kids, and I probably missed a lot of hours with them that I should have had if I would have thought through that a little better. Mm. Yeah, even even here. So I've been, I've been in Austin for four weeks now, I'll be here another four weeks before I go back. So yeah, that's, you know, eight weeks away from my daughter. She's four, she's, yeah, she'll be four this year. So eight weeks away from my family. So that's always, you know, that's always a subject worth addressing, like, you know, balancing that time away from your family and the time you spend doing your business. So definitely. Yeah, no doubt about it. And so, you, I mean, you mentioned you had some very painful lessons as well. Can you can you articulate on that a little more? Because I think those are even the ones we learn more from. Yeah, there's there's a lot. And some of those I'll go over in the lightning round a little more. But I mean, one thing I did is when I, you know, when I quit my job, I, um, I thought, you know, I'm an investor now. And uh, I would invest in different things. But the truth is, I wasn't really investing, I was speculating, you know, investing is when your principles generally safe, and you've got a chance to make a return and speculating is when your principle is not at all safe. And you've got a chance to make a return. And uh, I was speculating, I was a full time speculator. I didn't understand risk and return. And um, I, uh, that was some of the lessons I learned. I, you know, if, 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 if you keep playing double or nothing with all or most of your principal, you're going to land on nothing at some point, then what will you have left to double? Hmm. And, uh, you know, that was kind of the situation I was in. I wish I would have had the humility to listen to people like Paul Samuelson. He was the first economist from the US who got a Nobel Peace Prize. And he said, investing needs to be boring. Investing should be more like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. That's what he said. Mm -hmm. And I wish I would have recognized that. And um, as a result, you know, of, of a lot of painful failures and some other reasons we can talk about if you like, I, you know, 20 years later, I uh, started a podcast called How to Lose Money. And uh, we, uh, that wasn't, that didn't define my whole life. But I'll tell you this, I made a lot of money and I lost a lot of money in those years. Yeah, I can definitely relate to what he said about, you know, it's like watching paint dry. Yeah, you want to do the same. It's, it's like habitual, right? It's like a habit. You want to do the same thing day in and day out. It's boring, but that tends to be what works instead of investing on, you know, whatever, whatever fad is trending for the day, I think. It's so true. I mean, Warren Buffett's life over the last 70 years has been unbelievably tedious and boring. 
I mean, it sounds really cool, but if you dug into his day-to-day life, it was very boring. And it's very impressive that he was able to do what he's done, but that's the, you know, he, that's the price he paid. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, Paul, so, and you mentioned you were a finalist for Ernest and Young's um, Michigan Entrepreneur of the Year two years straight. So what, what qualities and or skills do you think allowed you to achieve that? Um, I think it was, you know, honestly, it was, we, we had a, an a obsession with customer service at our company. And I think that came more out of a personal obsession and personal character qualities. My business partner and I had, we just, he even wrote a book during those years called customer success, which was quite a, a great book uh, about how to, uh, how to help how to think through what would make the customer successful and do that for them, even when they don't ask. And uh, a simple example is my daughter and I went to get her a new iPhone a few weeks ago. And she said, she'll just take the latest iPhone. What do you have? And they said, well, iPhone 12 is the latest. We knew that. And uh, they didn't tell her that there was an iPhone 12 pro max. And so we just thought, you know, we said, well, what are the options? And they said, well, we've got this blue iPhone 12 and this <laughs> red iPhone 12, and there's this gunpowder black one. And so she chose one and got home and said, wait a minute, this phone's smaller than both my parents. And she compared it to my 10 and my wife's 12 Pro Max. And she said, wait a minute, I, she's only, she was only 16 or 15 at the time, by the way. Uh, she just turned 16. And so she, she called them and said, I, my iPhone's smaller than my parents. And they said, well, you didn't get the 12 Pro Max. She said, I wasn't offered the 12 Pro Max. I didn't even know. I just asked for the latest. And they said, well, you should have asked for the 12 Pro Max. She said, I didn't know there <laughs> was one. And see, the customer success in a better, you know, better for the company, better for that phone company, better for Apple would have been them offering the higher priced, higher size model. She's got little eye problems. And so she really needed, you know, a bigger phone and they didn't even ask. And I didn't think to ask either, I guess. So anyway, the point is it shouldn't be the customer's job to know everything, you know, as the company. And that's what we did really well. And I think that's one of the reasons we had the success we had. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, that's a good story. All right, Paul, so let's, let's get a bit technical then. So what are some of the strategies you recommend for people to earn total returns of 15% safely in an environment where banks pay, they're paying only one to 2% on savings accounts, CDs, and money market funds? You know, it's amazing to me how many of us, me included over the years, have thought that, you know, hey, look at HGTV. Look at these people flipping houses. I could do that. And people have gotten to the point where they, they, you know, they think they can be a house flipper. They think they can be like Chip and Joanna Gaines or whatever. They think they can passively own real estate. Owning and operating real estate is anything but passive. It's actually quite a lot of work and it's a great way to ruin your retirement. If you want to go into passive ownership, retire, you know, retiring it. 
Now, if you don't mind dealing with toilets, tenants, and trash and actively managing, if, you're, if your makeup is set up for that kind of stuff, great, go for it. I get it. But if you think it's passive, it's probably not. We found that people who invest with syndicators, people who invest passively with great syndicators and even share the profits with them get much better returns than those who think they can manage it themselves passively on the side. I mean, it's got to be, like I said with customer success earlier, it's got to be an obsession. It'd be better for you to invest over with an obsessive multifamily or commercial real estate operator and get, a, a, you know, let's say 60 to 80% of their profits rather than try to go it alone on the side while you already have a great job as a doctor, dentist, IT professional, lawyer, retiree, whatever it is. It's better to go with someone who's obsessed with it. I mean, imagine starting a competitor to Amazon out of your garage in your spare time. It's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, definitely That's not. That's the same thing I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, you definitely have to have a stomach for it. That's what I tell a lot of my investors. Sure, you could do it yourself, but I mean, why would you? I mean, when you, and when you can do it passively with a, with a great operator. That's exactly right. One of my investors who actually lives in Europe was trying and trying to find a house houses to flip and to own and operate. And she finally, after an hour conversation with me one day said, wait a minute, why am I working harder than I need to, to make less than I could? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, people think they can do it part-time, but that's, I mean, that's more than a full-time job. That's an 80, 80 hour a week thing there or more. Right. So yeah, so you definitely true. have to have the stomach for it. So true. So, Paul, your podcast, How to Lose Money, I mean, that sounds, I mean, it must be so many stories and so many topics you guys, you guys explore on there. So, I mean, how did you come up with the idea and what I, kind know, of things Donald, do you guys explore? Yeah, Donald, I went to many conferences over the years, as most of us have, and I would hear these wonderful, amazing, powerful stories from the stage, and I'm sure they were true. But I would watch the people in the audience kind of slumping. <laughs> I, you know, like at lunch or on breakout sessions, they would say, well, I'll never have that success. I'll never have that good luck. I'll never be able to get what they got, you know, education or whatever it is. And so I said to myself, you know, those people on stage have the same pain, fear, losses, insecurity, maybe even more than most of us. And if I ever got on stage, I'd want to interview them and tell my stories of pain and losses on the way to success to encourage others who are struggling. And you know what? That's exactly what we did. We started the podcast over four years ago, and we interviewed 238 people over the years who had incredible stories of pain and loss and failure and insecurity on the road to success. And what I keep hearing from our audience is, hey, that really encouraged me. It reminded me that if they had those problems and they succeeded, I can persevere and succeed too. Yeah, that is such an awesome idea. Cause I mean, who, who cannot relate to that, right? Because yeah, we all see, I mean, we all see the great success stories, but we never hear, like you said, the pain and loss behind that. Cause everybody experiences that. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah, that is so awesome. And I know you got you guys. Um, 
you do a lot of um, philanthropy as well with human trafficking. And how did you set your company up to generate funding to fight human trafficking and rescue its victims? Can you talk a yeah. little bit about that? Yeah, you know, uh, a, a number of years ago, I found this out and I was shocked. If you take the record profits, the record, not the average, of Apple, General Motors, Nike, and Starbucks, you take their record net profits and you add those together and triple that number, that's the approximate revenue generated every year by human trafficking. It's a horrible thing. Wow. And I, I like to believe that if I was alive in the mid 1800s, I would have been an abolitionist fighting against slavery. If I was a, an adult in the 1960s, I'd be fighting for civil rights. Well, this is a civil right. This is slavery. It's happening all around the world. And it's a horrible thing. And there's been over 100 people enslaved since we started our conversation, Donald. And so I want to do whatever I can to raise awareness of this from whoever will listen and also to, you know, use a portion of my personal income to fight, you know, this great evil in the world. Well, that's, I mean, that's crazy to think about it. I mean, and we, we hear, I, I hear a lot about, a, a lot about it on the news. So I, I don't like to politicize about where, where do you think, how is that happening and where is it happening? Like in, in relation to us in the U.S., does that happen, happen at the border or is it happening, you know, right? At, how, how is that happening in, our, you in know, the world today? It's funny because when I talk to people about this, I often hear them make this statement. They'll say, ooh, I live in Dallas and it's right off I-35 and it's a huge corridor for human trafficking or L.A. or San Francisco or uh, Roanoke, Virginia, or Boise. I mean, people say, you know, that they've got stories from all over the U.S. And I believe it. I know some of the people who help rescue these victims. And apparently it's a scourge everywhere in the U.S. and all around the world. And that's what really shocked me when I found out about that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's got to be great work you're doing. So, yeah, I'd like to talk more about that with you offline as well. So, Great. Okay, and Paul, so I know, I know so many multifamily investors and more and more I'm hearing about a lot of them getting into, interested in self-storage and mobile home parks along with myself as well. So why are so many of those investors turning to self-storage and mobile home parks for double digit returns? Yeah, you know, Donald, I wrote a book called The Perfect Investment. It was about multifamily investing. And I told my wife, I said, no more chasing shiny objects. I'm not going to jump around anymore. I'm going to stick with multifamily for the rest of my life. And after a number of years of beating my head against the wall, I just realized, hey, I am not making any progress here. And we're not finding deals that make sense. And we're not being responsible to our investors if we did. And so we decided to um, branch out and to look at other areas that looked recession resistant, like uh, self-storage, like mobile home parks. And we were quite shocked. Donald, there's so much I could say about this. I'll summarize a few comments here. Um, there are 53,000 self-storage facilities by most counts in the U.S. And about half are owned and operated by mom and pop operators. Uh, 
76 percent of them are owned by independent operators and um so like what i'm saying is half are those independents are mom and pops which means they don't have the desire or the resources or the knowledge or they don't care about maximizing the income and increasing the value of their facility but there's a lot of intrinsic value that's sometimes buried in their asset that they don't even realize is there for example uh, adding uh, u-haul to a self-storage you can make you know anywhere from up to uh, up to five thousand dollars a month in commission adding u-haul let's say you added just three thousand a month well that's thirty six thousand a year at the divide thirty six thousand by the cap rate and that's you know typically five six seven percent you just added over half a million dollars in value to that self-storage facility. Let's say you added locks, boxes, tape, scissors, you charge late fees, you upgrade, you know, you take some of that vacant land and add, you know, RV or boat parking, which is huge right now. There's a lot of things you can do to do value add. I thought value add was only, you know, for apartments in, you know, <laughs> upgrading and painting and new lighting and new appliances, countertops and cabinets. Who would have thought there was value add in a, you know, self-storage facility, you know, four pieces of sheet metal, some rivets and a door, but there is. And if you think about it, if I raise your apartment rent, let's say you're paying a thousand a month for apartment from me. If I raise your rent by 6%, you may not be willing to pay that additional $60 a month or $720 a year. But if I raise your self-storage rent, let's say you're paying a hundred a month. If I raise that by 6%, you're probably going to be maybe a little irritated, but you're probably not going to take a Saturday, get your friends together, rent a U-Haul truck to move your junk. I'm sorry, your treasures down the road <laughs> just to save $6 a month, especially when it's month to month and you don't have to keep it. You're thinking, eh, I'll be out of here in a few months anyway. And typically they're not. Mobile home parks are kind of similar in some ways, and that is it's very, very unlikely that people will move. Not 85 to 90% of the 44,000 mobile home parks in the U.S. are owned and operated by mom and pop operators with one facility, compared to only 7%, by the way, of large multifamily. Um, and so if 85 to 90% of those 44,000 are, you know, owned and operated by people who don't know how or don't have the desire to maximize income and increase the value, that's a huge opportunity. And there's also been a stigma for years about mobile home parks, as you can imagine, it's not a place people <clears throat> want to invest in. And so there's incredible inherent value in mobile home parks that can be capitalized on. We uh, I invested in one February of 2020. Uh, we went to Louisville, Kentucky, invested with a friend of ours. He acquired it for $7.1 million. That was about half equity and half debt. So about three and a half million cash, our cash and other, you know, other investors on our team and other where otherwise who invested in this. And he went to work doing three things, number four things, excuse me. Number one, he wanted to slash operating costs. Now, the owner of this park had lived out of state. She had not visited the park for over five years. And she benefited incredibly by the cap rate compression. Let's say 
cap rates had gone down from 10 to 6%. And so that cap rate compression mean that she made, meant she made millions of dollars even operating a mediocre mobile home park. Anyway, he lowered costs, number one. Number two, he passed the utilities back to the tenants, which is very standard and common throughout the multifamily and mobile home park world, but she hadn't done it. Number three, he uh, raised the rates a little bit. They were 25 to 35% below market. He raised them a little. And number four, he started down a path to filling the 50 vacant spots at the mobile home park. Well, he told me, you know, that this place would be worth at least $13 million in three years. And with a $7 million acquisition price, that was pretty powerful because, you know, all that increase in equity, that other $6 million will go to the investors, not the bankers. And that's one of the things we love about using safe leverage. Anyway, he got a $15 million offer in only seven, six or seven months of owning it sold it in December for 15 million. And that equity was, you know, basically tripled and very, very powerful story. And here's the thing, that kind of stuff is possible. It's not very possible in most areas of the world, but I mean, as far as most asset types, but in mobile home parks and self-storage, that kind of increase is possible when you're buying from a mom and pop. And I wanted to ask you, so how do you, um, so like you mentioned that stigma that, mobile home parks have, which I think is probably unwarranted in, in a lot of the cases. How do you educate your investors to get them past that that stigma and interested in investing in a mobile home park? You know, Donald, I thought that would be really hard. And it wasn't. Uh, we found out our investors were looking to us to make, you know, to look to do the due diligence. They were looking to us to find the right assets to invest in, number one because they trusted us. Number two, they weren't as interested in the asset type as, you know, as they were the safety and the stability and the predictability of the cash flow, the income and the capital gain. And hmm. mobile home parks, just like other asset types we've talked about, provide all of that. Okay, yeah, so if they're, they're savvy investors there, I mean, the numbers tell the story then, right? Yes, that's true. Okay. All right, very good. So, Paul, I mean, you have a lot of experience in, in real estate, so which includes flips, subdivision development, multifamily self storage. I mean, you've done some hotels, waterfront lot flips. Can you can you expand on some of the experience you have and some of the more interesting stories you've had in your investing career? Yeah, I mean, there's so many stories. <laughs> I can tell you that of everything out there. Um, I think this opportunity to unlock intrinsic value has been the most powerful. And I would say to multifamily, single family, commercial real estate investors of all types, it's really hard out there right now. When we're recording this, at least in the spring of 2021, it's perhaps the most overheated real estate market I've ever seen. And I'm, you know, over 20 years in the business. And so I would say, go look for intrinsic value. Go look for mom and pop operated assets of all types. And it could even be in the single family realm. I know somebody who buys houses and pays full price for them. They seem way overpriced to most of us, but he actually unlocks much value by you know furnishing these houses. They're near campuses 
and then he'll rent them out by the bed and he'll make huge profits doing this or taking uh, an apartment and then just furnishing it and rent it out, renting it out for, you know, not only Airbnb, but also for long-term, you know, nurses that are traveling or people who want long-term furnished apartments, huge profits in those type of arenas. And so that's what I would say to people is that's kind of my life message right now. And that is boiling, finding these opportunities where there's this intrinsic value. It's more than value add, though that's what it is too. It's, I call it unlocking intrinsic value. And it's when the intrinsic value, in other words, what could be is much higher than the extrinsic value. In other words, what is. And uh, unlocking that, like, I mean, you talk, you asked me about stories. I mean, one time I bought a five acre waterfront lot that was not subdividable. I found a way, a loophole in the law to subdivide that and turn it into five one acre lots. Now the whole thing would have sold and did sell to me for like $650,000. But I was able to sell the water, you know, the individual one acre lots, five of them for like 250,000 or more each. And so very, very powerful to unlock that intrinsic value. So it can happen in land. My son's doing it. He's buying these huge tracts of mountain land and he's actually finding all these various uses for him to make a profit. And so it's very powerful to unlock intrinsic value. Okay, yeah, very interesting. It sounds like you just need to be creative and think, think outside the box, as cliche as that sounds, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And that's exactly what I love doing right now. Okay, and Paul, you have an interesting riches to rags and backstory. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, it ties right into what I said a few minutes ago. What happened is in 2000, excuse me, 1997, I had about a million and a half dollars in my bank from selling to a public firm. Exactly 10 years later in the fall of 2007, I had two and a half million dollars in debt. And I didn't realize we were going into the biggest great, you know, the great financial crisis, the biggest downturn mm. since the Great Depression. Nobody knew that was coming. We have to remember that as I unfold this quick story. And so I was sitting in my uh, chair one day and I was thinking, I was actually meditating. And I was like, what should I do here? I'm in big trouble. My back's against the wall. And about that time, my business partner had left me with all the debt. He said, I quit. I can't take on half of these debt payments anymore. I, I just can't take this. So you can have all the properties and all the debt. And so that was, you know, like I said, two and a half million dollars in total debt, including my house and, you know, vacation home and everything like that. Well, I decided, I, I, I just really sensed I was supposed to study George Mueller. Well, George Mueller, M-U-E-L-L-E-R is the English spelling. Uh, he was German. And he actually moved to England. And in the early 1800s, he had set up orphanages to care for orphans in Bristol, England. And he had some really radical views on everything, including the view that you shouldn't take on any debt and you shouldn't do any advertising. Those are things that I just, you know, never agreed with. But at any rate, <laughs> I, I thought, what would George Mueller do if his back was against the wall like this? 
And I can I concluded that George Mueller would do something really radical, and that is he began giving his way out of debt. And so I thought, okay, that's crazy. So I met with a couple of friends who were encouraging me to declare bankruptcy. And I said, hey, I'm going to give my way out of debt. Uh-huh. Dead air is what I got from them too. <laughs> and then I told my family, my wife and four kids, you know, look, we, we're, we're, we might lose everything, but we will see what happens here. So we began to give to more aggressively to different charities and my church and things I was passionate about. We gave a set amount every week and it was painful every week, but we began to do that. And we, after about four weeks, I concluded, I came up with this idea about taking that five acre waterfront lot and using this loophole I found in the law. The, the, the idea dropped on me completely out of nowhere in a random conversation at a Subway restaurant with somebody. And the idea came to me about how to subdivide this into five one acre lots that wasn't planned. That story I started to tell you earlier, it wasn't planned that way originally. And um, that led to all kinds of gyrations and things. And I went to the planning and zoning commission. I presented this crazy idea and they sort of reluctantly approved it. 13 months later, I was completely debt free. I think awesome. it started with that decision, though. You know, people in some places in the world and some places in America, they call it karma. Other people call it the law of reaping and sowing. That's what I believe. And I think if we give generously, often, it's not a vending machine, it's not automatic, <laughs> but often we'll get back more than we gave. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely a fan of that school of thought as well. Awesome. All right, I want to get one more. I'm keeping an eye on the time because I know you're, we're kind of tight here. So there was one interesting thing in your bio, bio I saw. So how, how are commercial real estate investors partnering with the IRS to reap significant profits while per virtually paying no taxes? Yeah, that's a cute way of saying that the IRS, uh, I guess, reluctantly is following the government's lead and giving commercial real estate investors incredible uh, opportunities to build wealth without paying taxes. I can summarize by saying that a friend of mine who'd been in commercial real estate for about 20 years said, if the American people knew how little in taxes we actually pay, there'd be another revolt on our, on our hands. And this time it would be against us. There are lots and lots of ways that commercial real estate investors can use the IRS code legally to not pay taxes. And in fact, uh, there's you know cost segregation studies, mm -hmm. there's bonus depreciation, there's the 1031 exchange, kicking the can down the road to retirement. Uh, actually to death, and then the reset basis of uh, someone's real estate assets at their passing. So many ways to save on taxes. And um, very, very powerful. That same guy who told me about the uh, tax revolt showed me on paper over two grueling hours on his spreadsheets, how to take a $20 million investment over 20 years and turn it into $131 million in profits along the way over 20 years. 
uh, ending in 20 years with a $210 million portfolio of assets, that's debt and equity, and not paying any taxes at all along the way. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I'm, I, was, I just found out about cost segregation maybe about a year ago. And yeah, even just, just that particular facet of it is just unbelievable, mind-blowing. Really is. All right, good stuff, good stuff. So let's jump into the um, light, lightning round. I know we don't have much time left, but I want to go through a few of these right. with you. So, Paul, what, what book or books have greatly influenced your life? You've mentioned a couple since we've been speaking. Yeah, one is Mastering the Market Cycle by Howard Marks, which I've really it's really been helpful for me. And then another one is The One Thing by Gary Keller and Jay Papazon. Okay, yeah, I've heard of that one a few times, The One Thing. Okay. And how is a failure or perceived failure actually allowed you a greater success later? You know, the again, how to lose money. We learned a lot of lessons on there. And uh, a lot of it was taking the failures of our life, learning those lessons in a really deep way and really thinking through and really meditating on those failures, even if it's painful and thinking, okay, what do I want to make sure I don't replicate and we can do that with our own failures, most importantly, but also with others. And that's why we have the podcast, How to Lose Money. Okay. And if you can have an advertisement, advertisement, you know, I always say advertisement, I'd rather say if you could have a billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? I've got two different billboards I'd love to do. One is for fun. And the other is uh, for about investing. So the fun one is something that Neil Peart, who is my favorite musician and drummer um, with the band Rush, he saw this on a church billboard and he thought it was so hilarious. It said, God is dead, Nietzsche. And then down below it, it said, uh, Nietzsche is dead, God. <laughs> anyway, I think that would be fun. Um, and then as far as investing goes, I would say, you know, for an advertisement, I'd say, don't speculate, invest. Awesome. Yeah, that is so true. All right. And what advice would you give to, I'll say, smart, driven investor about to invest with someone raising capital or for an M&A acquisition, multifamily real estate or self-storage or any of those things, what advice would you give to, to them? My advice would be to read a book by my friend Brian Burke, B-U-R-K-E. It's called The Hands-Off Investor. It was published by Bigger Pockets Publishing, and it's about 300 and some pages on the due diligence you need to undertake before investing with anyone. Okay, The Hands-Off Investor, I'm writing it down. Yeah, definitely. I think that when you're doing when you're doing passive investing with with an operator, that's probably the most important thing doing due diligence on the operator. Yeah, really. Yeah, is. Definitely. All right. And what are, what are bad recommendations you hear in your day to day for people new to investing or entrepreneurship? Yeah, I think a lot of people take their entrepreneurship and put it into their investing, which is exactly what I do. I call it entrepreneurial investing. It's just where you take you know, the riskiest, leading edge, 
most Elon Muskish type thing. And you try to say, okay, this is crazy. We may lose it all. We may gain. And they try to invest that way. Warren Buffett has not done that. He's done the opposite. And that's why he's built, you know, the greatest investing career in modern history. I'd sum it up, summarize it like this. Low risk leads to blank. And that is low return. We all know that. Therefore, high risk leads to blank. And most of us think it's high return. That's not true at all. High risk leads to the potential for high return and also the potential for great loss. Definitely. Okay. And in the last five years, what have you become better at saying no to? Um, I've been saying no to working seven days a week. Like I said early in the show, I just, I really thought I just needed, you know, that hard work and effort directly leads to success. And you know what? There's a lot of that involved, but it's not always that true. Working smarter and just having some discipline and rules around my life have been more important. And that's why I've become better at saying no to more recently. Okay. And when you're feeling overwhelmed or unfocused, what do you, what do you do? Pray and meditate. Okay. Yeah. And I heard you mention meditation. Are you meditation daily, meditating daily or twice a day? I want to, I don't always sit down and do the, you know, breathing and all that, but um, I really do want to sit and reflect, meditate, reflect, whatever you want to call it on what I'm learning. In fact, one of my big I have four goals for this day, you know, in my, in the spare, not the spare time, the unscheduled time I have today. And of those four goals, one of them is to actually write down some of the things I've been learning that are just floating around in my head. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I actually just got into transcendental meditation February of last year. And yeah, I think it just, it just does so much for your day to day and how you, how you approach problems and resolve them. Mm -hmm. all right and last question which i just started asking recently so what important truth do very few people agree with you on well it's funny about a year ago in the beginning of COVID, i was you know on my bigger pockets live show on saturdays i was preaching that we were about to have a crash and i was wrong <laughs> And now, and also for the last four years on Bigger Pockets, even though I wrote the perfect investment five years ago, I've been preaching that people are overpaying for multifamily. It turns out that I might have been wrong on that too, even though I think they really did overpay. I think the results may turn out okay for them because a rising tide rise, raises all boats. And the rising tide I'm talking about right now is inflation. It's actually much, much more serious and, and going much more rampant than people think. There's a lot of examples of that if we have more time. But at any rate, I'll say that there is, um, you know, a lot, lot more cash chasing the same number of goods and services. And just that fact means there's going to be a lot of inflation. And it's possible that these people who overpaid are actually going to find that those assets are worth much, much more in future years. And they're gonna turn out, you know, those people who overpaid, it's gonna turn out okay for them. I think that's true in a lot of arenas. And so that's kind of a radical thought. 
what the what that leads me to say is what I told another real estate investor who was agonizing over this on Monday night, um, and that is it might be okay for you to overpay or at least pay full price for stuff. I hate to say overpay, and it might be okay for you if you go in if you can get debt at like three percent. It might turn out well for you because three percent might be less than way less way, way less than the future inflation rate. If that's true, then it's possible that that's sort of like free money. Yeah, definitely. Okay, interesting. All right, thanks so much, Paul. I mean, we've covered a lot of ground here today. I think you've given a lot of valuable information to our listeners. I really appreciate having you on. Donald, it's been a real honor and I really appreciate how thorough you are and how thoughtful you are. And I know you're audience appreciates you as well. All right. And Paul, before we jump off of, um, if anybody wants to get in touch with you or collaborate you, with you, how, what's the best way to get in touch with you? It's by reaching out at wellingscapital.com. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S capital.com. And we actually have a free e-course for people who want to invest in commercial real estate. You can get that right there at our website. Okay, excellent. And if anybody wants to listen to your podcast on how to lose money, where can they find that? They can find that on Apple, Stitcher, um, iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, and at our website, howtolosemoney.com. All right, sweet, sweet. All right, again, thanks so much, Paul. And um, I'm sure I'll be talking to you soon. Actually, I'm going to shoot you an email about another topic as well. But again, thanks so much. And you have a great day. You too, Donald. Thank you. It was an honor. Likewise. Take care, Paul. All right. Bye. There you have it, guys. Another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the books. If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves. <laughs>